HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network. Pretty damn close to 12. I was here not that late. I mean, late, but not that late. From Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join as usual with Nastasia Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? We got Matt in the booth. Feeling good. And Peter Punching Bag Kim from MoFad. How you doing, Peter? It's risen to the status of an official moniker. Peter the Punching Bag Kim! <laughs> What's my WWF costume there? Uh, I don't know. Uh, like uh, a punching bag. I mean, big punching bag. I'm just dressed like bag. a punching bag, basically. Yeah, it's you'd be animal. protected from hits. Yeah. It's good. My yeah. move is just standing there and the other person punching me till they fall over. Call in all your rope-a-dope questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. What are you here for today, Peter, aside from getting uh, batted about? Well, I am here... David, to uh, be on the show, because it's been a long time, of course. He's lying. But they also try and <laughs> want to uh, give a plug for MoFad's Kickstarter campaign that's up right now. There you go. We are raising money for the exhibition African Slash American Making the Nation's Table. Can you describe this exhibition? Well, it will be the country's first exhibition to recognize black contributions to American cuisine. Wait, you mean the first one that we're doing? In the first one, the first major one. First one ever. No, what you say is like the first one ever, really. That's right. No one, like people have talked about certain contributions. That's right. Right. But no one has ever devoted an exhibition to this subject. And who is 
heading the exhibition. Who's our curator? Dr. Jessica B. Harris. That's right. And who, by the way, hosts on Heritage Radio Network. So check out her podcast that we're on. I don't think she's recorded one recently, but she has some podcasts up on Heritage Radio Network. And I would say if you were like, it's not just that this is who we ended up with. If you could choose any single human being on Earth to be the curator of this exhibition. She is the OG. Yeah, she is the one. There's generally a consensus also among the sort of culinary community. I mean, it's just like she is the one who's been writing about this way before anybody was talking about it, really. So, so yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, for a long time ago, long, long, long time ago, like hers were the only books yeah. on the subject that were available. It was, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I went to, uh, when I was in New Orleans last, I went to Dookie Chase. I think I spoke about it on the, on the show because of their shrimp clemenceau and the butter that I want, I want to have like packed into crates and sent to me the Clemenceau butter. Uh, but when I told them that, uh, that Jessica had told me to go there and speak to them, they were like, yeah, she told us to speak to you. And that's why we're talking to you because literally nobody, if she tells you to do something, you do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think you'll agree, Dave, this is probably one of the most important food and drink stories that we could really get out there as an exhibition from MOFAD. And we have our campaign up right now. We could definitely use some support. And if honestly, if every listener to Cooking Issues just took five minutes, put in 20 bucks, the cost of, you know, a pizza, then we would get past our goal multiple times over. So please visit aa.mofad.org. Again, that's aa.mofad.org. And really contributions at any level uh, will really help, but I would really appreciate it. When I was in college, the standard garbage pizza was seven bucks. Nastasia called it. We were trying to think of something that wouldn't take you off and onto a tangent. And but yes, okay, agreed. Depends on where you get the pizza. Depends even, on the number of toppings. Even today. Let's just say Even today. Um, I can go to the West 4th Street stop, yeah. get off, and walk three feet and obtain eight slices, a whole pie, yeah, yeah. of dollar slice pizza. Dollar slice pizza. For $8. So this, this, the stipulation here is that this is a a higher priced pizza place and you're getting something more along the meat lovers extravaganza with three X's. Which, which by the way, leaves me to this, which is not a tangent, Nastasia. Peter, you're a snob. <laughs> That's it's a long way to say this. Twenty dollar pizza. Actually, anyway, but back to the pizza is the answer. It's you for the low cost of two and a half dollar pizzas. That's right. For the low, there you go. That is ir- <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is ir- for the low cost of assuming it's sliced in eight slices, of course. Which you know that's the way God that's wants pizza of, slice. Well, yeah. unless it's a small pizza, in which case you go to six. But but no one likes a small pizza. Our personal pizzas go to four. But mm-hmm. in any case, so uh, yes, go to aa.mofad.org and please kick in and we have lots of nice perks you can see the exhibition before anybody else we've got signed books from jessica harris we've got uh some really great stuff so i said this before you know nastasia lopez likes to walk up with a 50 cent piece and get change for her coffee what? she buys the cheapest coffee what she buys it? the worst coffee yeah deli it's, coffee no not even no no deli they have to pay overhead they have to pay rent to have a deli so that's too high rent for her that's uh-huh. too no, i make my own coffee now what, what Wait, what's what's Wait, your definition of bad coffee? She buys coffee that was brewed like at three in the morning, put into a carafe, taken out on the street side in a truck, and served all day. It's been kind of kept hot all day. Not Where in a does thermal one carafe. Find coffee like, like this. Carts on the street. Oh, the carts. Yeah. I see. Yeah, I got it. She also. Do you oh come on! Stale? I mean, those pastry carts. It's like a part of New York City. I mean, I get it. I enjoy that they exist, but would you ever buy coffee there? No. No. Do you enjoy a stale <laughs> Kaiser roll with uh, butter? Because that's the other thing they sell, no, no, really. No. 
the yeah. stale Kaiser roll. I grew up on stale Kaiser roll and butter wrapped in saran, though. Yeah. That was, you know. There is a, a romance there, but they're objectively not a tasty way to start your day. No, they're bad. You know what? I used to love, love, love Kaiser rolls. I think too doughy for most applications. They go stale too quickly. What do you think about the Kaiser roll? I love the Kaiser roll. We have a ha- caller on the air with a question about Kaiser rolls. Really? Right, I call. mean, not the last part, but yeah. Right. <laughs> caller, you're on the air. Not about Kaiser rolls. Sorry about that. Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> But one, let me just say, uh, uh, Johnny Hunter turned me on to this show a while back and um, it's had a huge impact on my knowledge of cooking and food, food in general. Well, so I really appreciate what you guys do. Johnny's a great guy, too. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good one. Um, so I have a bunch of friends who just moved into this really nice house uh, in South Austin, Texas, with a huge backyard. Um, and they're trying to have a housewarming party, probably like 50 to 80 people. Mm-hmm. And they want me to, or, you know, it's a group effort here. But uh, the, the idea we came up with was just roasting a whole pig. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know some farmers in the area, so we can get a good one. Um, I've never done that before. I know you need to butterfly it, um, but I wasn't sure if we should like rent uh, a pit smoker to put it in or build it ourselves. So I wanted I wanted to know if you had any insight or suggestions on how to go about it. The biggest pig I've ever personally cooked whole is only like thirty to forty pounds, and I'm assuming that you're going to get like a standard like one eighty to two hundred and twenty pound hog, right? Probably. I think it's going to be around like 110, 125. Oh, yeah, like a medium-sized, medium-sized thing. I mean, there's something fun about, there's something, I could see it going both ways. Like, it's not particularly difficult to build, um, it's not particularly difficult to build a a, a pit, you know, uh, in the ground. But, yeah, and then you have it, right? But also there's something fun about not having to do that and then renting the unit and having it show up. The rental units are probably also easier to control because, you know, you can kind of look up their characteristics, fire them up fairly easily, uh, whereas the one in ground, I would run a couple of tests first to see kind of how much stuff you need to burn to get it to what temperature, how well it maintains. So I would probably do a test firing beforehand. It's never good to fire something up the first time, although that's entirely how I operate my life. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I still tell people that it's not the kind of way to go, but I can see the kind of the, the joy of both ways of having something just magically appear and having it work uh, versus, uh, you know, putting it in, into the ground. So it's really going to be, I mean, I'm going to have to leave that up to what's more important to you uh, to do. I mean, for me, I would probably build the damn thing, but, but I think I'm a bad guy for this though. Isn't it? It's pretty I'm, cheap I'm, to I'm, buy I'm, a Cajachina too, right? Uh, do they hold the full? Do they hold that big of a? I think they do. Yeah. People love the cajachina. Yeah. People love love the cajachina. When I've I never was used one. I was looking at doing a whole hog for Mofad, and I was looking for the easiest sort of surefire way to do it. I ended up landing on the cajachina, but I can't remember how much that thing costs. But the, the cajachina, it's been a long time. It's basically like a lined plywood box, but it's overfired. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember. It's been so long. People do love the cajachina, which is not from China. It's like, why do they call it Cajachina? Lord knows. But yeah, it's ma- mainly from the Caribbean, I think. And then yeah, I, I know, like the people I know who use it are Puerto Rican, but I don't know where it's from. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, butterflying is going to make your, your life easier. But I don't feel, I feel that there are many people, maybe even some people on the chat, who have an outdoor space where they can do this, who are more expert. I've always wanted to do a buried pig. Talk about 
talk about really like now that there are people who do the buried pigs who um, who they like bury thermal couples with it so they can figure out what's going on. Right. But there is something real baller about a buried pig. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like a giant Kahlua yeah, style buried pig. There's something like kind of baller about that. But again, yeah, I got to got to see that in the Yucatan, the Cochinita for Bill. How was it? I don't know. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, they uh, they took the big latas, like the aluminum tins, and then they cut the whole pig in half um, and buried it underground for I think it was like 17 hours. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, but I don't think we have that much dirt to work with. Well, I don't know. Like, uh, what do you mean? Like, how hard is it to dig a hole in Austin? I mean, in Connecticut, it's impossible. Well, they just have, you know, it's, it's a yard, and part of it has, like, cobblestones on it. I just don't think, and they don't own the house they're renting it, so I don't think we can uh, build, like, a uh, four-feet-deep hole. Uh, but um, If they don't own it, just rent the thing. Hey, it comes in, you bring it, you tow it in. This is Austin. Someone has a pickup truck. Like, go, like, yeah. you know, go, you know, tow the thing in, fire it up, cook the thing, get rid of it, and then you've done nothing to their house. That seems to me, with those kind of scenarios where there's no ownership of the house or desire to have a pig-shaped, like, hole in the ground or a burnt spot, uh-huh. you know? Because th- that sucker, you can so just chuck I up did, in the driveway and go, you know? Yeah, I was thinking, like, <clears throat> I saw online you can do it pretty easily with cinder blocks, like building a, um, I guess, just a pit, you know? But I, I was wondering, should I be nervous at all about, like, a grease fire? I mean, what do you mean nervous? You worried about burning the pig? Like, what are you well, going to catch on fire? You're not going to build it next to the house, are you? No, but if the fat drips down in the backyard, it's not, like, an issue at all? I mean, I mean, like, if you, I mean, like, I wouldn't say this to someone who lived in, like, you know, who's going to build a fire near Brush in California right now. But I mean, okay, uh, yeah. you know, like it's like, what are you gonna burn down? Like you can hose, you can hose down your your grass and all, all this other stuff around it, if you're if you're really worried about it. But you know, in general, like you got to follow a certain state. Like don't build it near any structure or any, like that can burn or any source of tinder. Like if you had a if you had a pile of dry tall if you were like had dry tall grass or brush anywhere near you, I'd be like, that is a bad idea. Even with a grill, I would move that stuff away. You know, a couple of, a couple of uh, you know, good pops off of one of those. And if you have a tinderbox next to you, it will light up. You know what I mean? But, right. you know, I, I would assume that, you know, you could either moisten down. It's the same problem, like, you know, people have when, when like, I'm lighting fireworks. I'm like, it's wet here. Nothing's going to light on fire. It is wet here. You know, but, you know, if you were doing that in California, you know, in Sonoma, you know, where the, the entire ground is primed to catch on fire, then I'd be like, yeah, you know, fireworks, maybe not a good idea right here unless you had, like, adequate fire breaks and whatnot. But I would say the same thing for any of these things. Right. I mean, Austin's not dry, is it? Um, it's pretty dry. I mean, it's rained a good bit in the past week, so hopefully uh, when it won't be anymore. This is going to be early December. Yeah, I mean, just, so I mean, like, exercise caution... Don't build it near uh, sources of flame, you know, especially sources of flame that can travel long distances. Yep, just comes down to moisture management. It's all moisture management, baby. That's the answer to everything. Like, all of life's problems can be solved with <laughs> moisture management. Yeah. Moisture anyway, management. Yeah. Let us know cool. how... I'll keep you posted. Yeah, let us know how it goes. Let us know how it turns out. All right, cool. Peter Burned My Sausages. Right. Oh, that, is that the name of your next band? Peter Burned My Sausages? I gave them a heavy dose of Maillard, basically. 
Oh, you did the uh, Argentinian style so, grate? Yeah. The, the tripod grate? See the black? That's not the Argentinian. What? No, the, question, Stas. Were the sausages delicious? Like, yes or no, were the sausages Okay, so sausages Peter, was at, Peter was at Nastasia Lopez's fall festival, which I yes. couldn't attend because Dax was racing. And he was wearing a tie. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it is because I was ca- my kid was Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes, and I was his loser dad, who's always in a suit. <laughs> that checks out. There you go. So... <laughs> There what, you go. Did, was was Felix peeing on the fire? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You got a full costume. There you go. I would love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, but who is who the, is the uh, tiger character? I have. We had a little stuffed animal tiger for him to carry around. Mm. Yeah, but he didn't. He hated it, so it didn't really work. But mm. spiked up his hair. You know, he's blondie. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I've. You know, I can't remember anything about Calvin and Hobbes except for the car pictures. Well, the thing about Calvin and Hobbes is I've reread it as an adult and as a parent, and I've realized that Calvin is actually like seriously a troubled person who has no ability to connect with anybody and he lives in this hypothetical world and so he's he's got some kind of deeper issues just like us yeah there you go there you go yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you look at the comics now everybody has a hard time with him his parents his classmates his teacher his friends he has no friends his only friend is this stuffed animal and but are we to assume in the cartoon that the stuffed animal is actually a real character or are we to assume that it is an imaginary character that is some sort of pseudo alter alter ego for him? That's what it is. So there's a really dark undertone to Calvin and Hobbes for me now. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. So you dress your son as that. There you go. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and that's Peter Kim for you, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the sausages ended up good, right, Stas? I mean, there's like just a little ones. little heavy Maillard on it. It's like when people undercook things and they say, you know, it's a little al dente. <laughs> So last week, should take this to heart because the only input from the chat is I think you should make a bunch of sausages instead of doing a whole pig. Thanks, chat. (laughs) But don't do them Peter Kim style. Right. (laughs) Don't do them Peter Kim style. Uh, All right. So uh, last week, I'm going to give some updates. Last week we had, and uh, next week I'll give an update because I'll post the pictures. Uh, Next week I'll talk about Aardvark hot sauces because I got received the Aardvark hot sauces. Uh, But last week, Nastasia and I did some tastes on uh, air. A listener who preferred to remain anonymous but went by Capri Sun uh, sent us a bunch of stuff. What did we taste on air, Stas? The, the venison jerky. Summer sausage. And the summer sausage. Right, we went off on summer sausage. But they also, summer sausage. Dax loved the summer sausage and the jerky. And then, like, you know, at the bar there was endless jokes about, you know, this person or that person's summer sausage. But... The uh, by the way, summer sausage. Well, I'm not going to get into it again. Listen to last week. Listen to last week. Listen to last week. Uh, they also included in that care package, which Nastasia didn't mention. Uh, they included in that care package. Uh, well, we mentioned it. The masa, the blue masa made with masienda corn. Shout out to masienda, and a uh, striped bass fillet. Beautiful, by the way. Beautifully filleted striped bass fillet. Uh, and then I wrote, read on the package that it was sent in. It had been ikiji made, mm. and nice. so. Uh, I was like, so that night I, you know, pressed out the tortillas in my Victoria. By the way, if you buy the tortilla, the standard tortilla press, like the tinned tortilla press that is standard here, which I think is made by Victoria, just an FYI, the way that they're organized is there's uh, the flap and then the handle, right? So you put saran down. I don't know. Some people say they can do it without saran. There's freaking lying. There's morons. I don't know what the hell they're saying. But anyway, you put saran down on the tortilla press. You put the ball of tortilla. You put the ball uh, closer to the hinge end, right? Then you slap it down. You put the handle over go, 
you press it down, and you might have to you know push hard to it a couple times, and that's it. That's your tortilla. Now, uh, a little trick: they're not very well aligned, and so the maximum or the minimum thinness of tortilla is not ideal on those things. So I have a cardboard permanent cardboard shim that you know thin cardboard shim that I use. You should find your own thickness that you like that I store with my tortilla press, such that I can get the proper thickness of tortilla out of the standard American available Victoria oh, tortilla nice. press. Anyway, so I made a bunch of blue corn tortillas, and since I have a very nice uh, crepe maker, a crepe, pronounce it properly, PDP, 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 come on, come on, come on, what crepe, crepe? No, the the company crepe, C K R A M P. K-R-A-M, cramp? Crampeuse. It's, it's like the Brittany model. It's like the French crepe maker. It's the one they use in France. Oh, yeah. It's the one I carried home on my back. Crampeuse. There you go, baby. Yeah. Anyway, it's gas-fired, and so, like, it, it's a very good comal substitute. Yeah. And so I was able to get nice, puffy tortillas. They were very good. And then, because Uikiji made the uh, striped bass fillet, for those of you that don't know what Uikiji is, I don't got time to tell you now. Look it up on the Cooking Issues blog. But... Uh, I ate some raw just so I could see what the texture of, and even though it had been uh, frozen and thawed, the texture of it was very nice, very nice, very clean flavor, very nice. Uh, and then the rest, I did my standard, my standard technique, which is uh, little flour, little flour on the skin side, butter in the pan, start it to crisp it up, and then uh, you know, baste the butter over the top. Well, salt and pepper. Uh, baste the butter over the top. And then uh, under the broiler for a while, pull out, put back on the stove for a little bit to retrace the bottom skin, sears all the top to finish and dump out. Delicious and not overcooked. Uh, I love I love it to sears all with the fish. Nastasia, and I, Nastasia says I should talk more about my sears all use. I also... Yeah, it's good for fish, man. I was also steaming the hell out of some cheese. I've been steaming so much cheese recently in my, in my burger tender Connecticut style official oh, cheese yes. steamer. And I have to tell you, I love the hell out of it. You know, we had a, Johnny was mentioned earlier from Madison. So for those of you that are from Wisconsin and in general that area of the country who think you know squeaky cheese, I have now steamed, I have become, I'm not going to say I've become the master of the cheese steamer, (laughs) but like the cheese steamer and I kind of speak the same language. We've got our communication protocol down such that like, like, you know, I got, I can run it now on an induction burner and I can just sit there and keep it. And I know how long I, I can keep cheese a lot longer the steam cheese, so the way this works, people, is you have a square box called the burger tender. Burger, B-U, burger with apostrophes, tender with an apostrophe R. And in it are a bunch of little, like, rectangular dishes made of Ultem plastic, right, which are kind of real nice. And then you can put burgers in them, but that's kind of dumb. I don't really like the steam burger. But then you, you can put into it these blocks of cheese and they steam, but because they're in this container, the, one of the tricks is you got to pam the container first so that the cheese can come out. But the trick is this. You steam it, and you can, as long as you don't, like, have, like, too much moisture condenses in over a long period of time. So if the steam is really, really raging, you get a lot of moisture in, but you can kind of pour the moisture out. It doesn't matter. But I've tested anywhere from, like, 10. You really need about 10 minutes to steam the cheese, right, up to, like, an hour. I haven't done more than an hour and a half. Anyway, so... 
the trick is you pull it out and you let it rest. And as it rests, the outside skins up a little bit. And if you're using straight cheese as opposed to pizza, you think, going back to pizza, that it's the cheese on the pizza that's burning you. I think it's the sauce that's burning you. Because I've eaten these cheese almost right out of the steamer, and I don't get viciously burnt because there's not a lot of water in cheese. You know what I'm saying? And so there's not a lot of ability for it to transfer the, the heat to your mouth. And so the steamed cheese can be eaten relatively quickly. But if you dump it right out of the bucket, it kind of oozes everywhere. If you wait like between 45 seconds and a minute and then take it out, it starts going into the dough phase where the cheese becomes a dough. So like like mild Kobe style, like queso de papa, like crap BS cheddar, that stuff steams like on point, amazing. Sharp cheddar, you have to wait for it to fully melt out and then congeal and it's good. But, and here's where I'm going to say, like if you ever have a chance to steam cheese, you Peter, you would never buy this cheese, and Stassi would never buy this cheese. But you can get it at Trader Joe's. So you know how President makes the cheap brie? Yeah. What the hell is that, Matt? President makes the cheap brie. They also make a cheap fake Emmentaler called Madrigal. Madrigal. Mm -hmm. And Madrigal fake Swiss-style cheese from France by the President Corporation. When you steam that thing, when you cut it into like little two-ounce like squares and you steam it, it doesn't melt. Even for 45 minutes, it doesn't melt when it's steamed. But what happens is you pull... What is that noise, Matthew? I have no idea. When you pull, out, when you pull it out of the steamer, right, you let it sit for a second and you eat it, it's not the first bite that's squeaky, but as it starts cooling in your mouth, the second, third, fourth, and fifth bites are the squeakiest of all squeaks. Makes a, makes a Wisconsin <laughs> cheese curd seem like cream cheese in comparison to its squeak ability. It is... Wow. And to me, the pleasure of the squeak is so high. I, I brought some into the bar, and I steamed it in my little all-ten containers. I steamed this cheese at the bar, and, like, half the people were like, oh, yeah, super squeaky. And then I was like, you guys aren't worth it. And I left. I was like, like no one can understand. If you're not, like, this is why I won't serve it at the bar, because it's like, for those of you out there, if you can hear me and you like the squeak, Go find President Madrigal, President brand Madrigal cheese. Cut the rind off. Slice it into pieces. How big is that, Peter? Like like three quarters of an inch? Yeah, three quarters. Three quarters of an inch thick, right? Into like almost like sticks, if you can. Steam it for like 15, 15, at least, at least 15 minutes. Pull it out. Let it set. Push on it. It should feel rubbery. Let it sit for a second. And like you can feel it's pliable. And eat it. And then let, let the other piece sit for a little bit and eat it and see how long the squeak maintains. It's ridiculous. It's the squeakiest, the squeakiest <laughs> of all squeaks. It's the squeakiest cheese I've ever had. The squeakiest I've what? ever had. I didn't know you derived so much pleasure from squeaks. All people who truly love cheese curds derive yes. pleasure from squeaks. And there you have it. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. 
Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. So anyway, so I enjoyed nice. uh, I enjoyed the care package that I received. Yeah, yeah. Well, I if you like a particular quality about something, may as well see what it's like to take it all away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right, Peter. This is what people don't do. Like, whenever you're testing something, people say, how do you figure out X, Y, or Z? All right. Well, you try to do something that's close to what you think is right, and then do a lot more and a lot less of that and see which way it goes. Exactly. Right? It's yeah. like... All the way up, all the way down. See yeah. what happens. Yeah. All these kind of middling things takes forever to get where you want. That's right. You know what I mean? Anyway, someday, you know, I want I want to do a thing at Tales of the Cocktail this year, but I'm probably going to miss the deadline where I talk about literally, like specifically, how to do drink development from kind of my point of view. But then I thought it'd be interesting to get someone whose drinks are kind of the exact opposite of the style that I work in. But I got to figure out who that would be and then ask them like in the next day. By the way, speaking of next day, Nastasi and I will not be here next week. We will be in China. 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 We will be in China next week, trying to make our next product. Nastasi Lopez is not psyched about going to China. I'm not psyched. Because I've. How can I've, you not be excited about going there? Have you ever been to this part of China? No. It would be like imagine you're like you're not excited to go see the United States. You've never been to the U.S. You're not excited. Like going uh, we're going to Elizabeth, New Jersey, <laughs> and we're staying only in Elizabeth. No offense, Elizabeth, New Jersey, but offense, New Elizabeth, New Jersey. Obviously Absolutely offense. offense. Think of another offense. direct offense. Ronkonkoma. I've never even been to Ronkonkoma. I've flown in there. Anyway, yeah, so, like, the thing is, is, like, you're, like, you're going to go, like, New Jersey, a lot of great places, but not even, like, I hear there's nice Elizabeth. No, you're going to stay at the Cogen plant right right off of the New Jersey Turnpike. Okay, okay, I got it. The place where your car has to be on recirc or you pass out. You know what I'm talking about, about the Jersey Turnpike, where you're, like, what is that? You're, like, oh, that is the Cogen plant and all of the, that says, like, it has, like, fire shooting out of the top of it and then touts how, like, environmentally sound it is. And it's right next to all the petroleum storage. Because in Elizabeth is where all the petroleum storage tanks are. So it smells hard like petroleum but right next to the highway. I got us a nice hotel in Hong Kong the last night because they, whoa, 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 suggested an airport hotel. And I was like... Oh, actually, I, I always stay at the Marriott. The one right at the airport, super convenient. That's great. I'll put you there, and I'll stay in the nice hotel. Uh, okay, well, good luck getting to the airport in the morning. What time I don't have to go in the morning. You have to go in the morning. Oh, you're I taking a different LA. flight? Yeah, but yours flight why, you know, why don't you talk to me, but where are you staying? Are you staying on the island? 10. Or are you staying on Kowloon? On the island. You're, I mean, I can put you at the airport hotel. Marriott. The Marriott by the airport, the water tastes terrible. They don't filter it. It tastes like a fish tank. Horrible. But, like, and the tea tastes like the water. Horrible. Like a fish tank, like algae, like <laughs> garbage, like filth. Uh, safe, garbage. Uh, but their buffet, decent actually, decent. 
Uh, Timothy Helmuth writes in. Right now. My God. Can you refresh my memory about your Neonata pizza? I tracked down a couple of jars, uh, genuinely unavailable in Canada, at least online and in Vancouver, but now can't find the episode where you discuss how you make the pie. Very simple. Actually, do I remember how I did it? I don't. I think it was just basically you make it the dough. You put on the neonata. You, you make the you, dough. you make it the dough. You, <laughs> put, you put on the. I think it was just neonata. Did I put cheese on it? I, I'm I'm channeling I'm challenging my classics in the field guy from later, who's you know as the stats now saying fun to say Giuliano Bugiali, but like say it stats. No, Ju, it's a lot of. Ju, ju, yeah, how many ways is your mouth blue when you say it? Giuliano Bugiali. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, and whenever I say it, I remind myself uh, of the way that uh, Brad Pitt's character says Gorlami in, in Glorious Bastards, yeah, 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 which yeah. is, you know, one of everyone's. If you've seen that movie, that's one of the all time best parts. Yeah. His name is supposed to be Corleone, and he's yeah. like, What's your name? Gorlami. And he's supposed to actually be Italian. Gorlami. And he says it just like that. I love it. Anyway, uh, I think I just put on, uh, I probably did put cheese on it. For those of you that, don't know, like most old school Italian people, Giuliano Bugiali included, back when he was alive, would be horrified that I would put a fish product and a cheese product together on a flatbread and call it something. So we won't call it pizza. We'll call it like an American style flatbread with certain ingredients. Anyway, so I believe it was neonata, uh, like a little bit, sparse amount of fresh mozzarella. I probably put on some grana of some kind, fired it off. Uh, I think I put mozzarella. Maybe I didn't. And then the trick is, is just like uh, cracked. You, you uh, fry some eggs and then you put the fried eggs on uh, and you eat it. That's all you need to do. Oh, did I put arugula on that? I probably put arugula on that because Nastasia and I and my family and I. So like, so like when I eat at home and when I eat with Nastasia, which is pretty much all the pizza I ever eat, like we put greens on it because, because. When I was a kid, I never put greens on. Even as a young adult, I never put greens on. And then, like, I don't know, like, eight, nine years ago, it's just, just like, why would I have pizza without some greens on it? Mm-hmm. Depends on the pizza for me. Like what? What pizza do you not want well, greens on? I think if there's a, a meat product on there, I want to have greens. But if it's uh, more of a veggie pie, I don't need the greens. Why? Just because. But if it's like a cauliflower pizza or, like, you know. Cauliflower pizza? What? What are you, Oprah? Cauliflower pizza? Yeah. What? That is, What? Explain to me Explain to me How cauliflower works on a pizza You do like a white pie And you throw roasted cauliflower on it It's delicious Like what shape is this cauliflower You cut it in like thin slices Okay Yeah it's good I don't know Yeah it's good You know what I like Like the eggplant slices From eggplant parm That are fried out Sliced in pieces And put on on pizza That I like It's also good Yeah Cauliflower pizza? Yeah. You, you're familiar with Oprah's new pizza that she's selling. I'm not talking right? about making the dough out of cauliflower or like rice You're familiar with that though, right? No, I'm not. Oprah now sells a pizza where she's like, one third of the pizza is cauliflower. No, I hate that. But I have long enjoyed eating cauliflower like, before cauliflower became this weird thing now. Your kids can't even tell. What weird thing is it now? Well, no, it's well, like everybody's no, it's like really ricing cauliflower. Really like, like Rice cauliflower is not terrible though. Yeah, and, I know. And I most know, people I'm aren't saying, using like, the stem, so... Yeah. You know, like, they have to sell the florets to you. they got to find something to do with the stem. Yeah. I fine. also really like broccoli stem. Yes. Broccoli stem's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. 
I have no problem with rice cauliflower. I don't really like the I, texture of it. I'm just saying it's like the cauliflower being used to replace all these other things, like cauliflower risotto, cauliflower, using cauliflower as a dough for pizza, you know. Yeah, cauliflower risotto, what's that? Rice cauliflower? Yeah, and then you make a quote-unquote risotto out of it, but it's not. What's the word risotto mean, you think? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not cauliflower. Yeah, it's not like, yeah. So, you know, I think I've said this on the, on the radio show before, but I use cauliflower as a... Oh, by the way, neonata is a uh, fish, a tiny fish, neo, newborn fish, uh, neonata fish and pepper condiment from Calabria that you can get at Coluccio Brothers uh, in New York City, in Brooklyn. Uh, it's hard to get even here, so you might have to go to their store. And they have the best bacala of any, it's not the season now, but come Christmas time, if you can make it out to Coluccio Brothers in Brooklyn, 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 then... Um, they have the thickest, biggest, uh, like, bacala fillets I've ever seen. I was going to buy one, but it would stink up my whole house. Um, wait, so what were we talking about? We're talking about cauliflower. Oh, yes, yeah, so I would literally use that as a threat to my kids. I'd be like, what are you having tonight? Cauliflower. Because, like, I told you this story, right? Did I tell us on air? Where Booker was like, I don't like green vegetables. And so I was like, all right, I'll get cauliflower. So I got cauliflower. It's not green. No. And I put cheese over it. This was when I was, you know, I was like, I steamed the whole head. I brought it out. It doesn't look like a vegetable. It looks like a human brain. And then I poured, like, cheese sauce all over it and breadcrumbs. Yeah. That's a win, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Cauliflower, breadcrumbs, cheese sauce. Yes. And the crying from both of them, crying, screaming, you know. And ever since then, you know, both in English and Spanish, I'm like, they're like, hamburguesas de cauliflower. And they're like, ah! <laughs> you can't even, how do you even make a cauliflower hamburger? <laughs> anyway. Sure, somebody's tried. At the risk of earning the hammer's ire. Pff, you already earned it, baby. Just by breathing. Question. Wow. Here's a second question. I successfully made a smooth emulsified sauce based on a method I thought I learned from the show, probably. Pressure cook garlic for a long time, like 30 minutes. Covered in oil, then blend the lot into a smooth emulsified sauce. It's worked a few times, but I must have forgotten a detail because my last few attempts, the sauce is broken in a bad way, and I can't find the old episode where you talk about it. I don't cook it in oil. I cook it in milk. And then the milk breaks, but the curds stay there. I drain off the liquid, blend, blend the casing curds and the garlic with oil and salt, and that's how I make it. See whether that helps. That's how, that's how I do it. Uh... Can't wait to hear how the laser project works out. I hope it doesn't end up breaking your life goal of not catching on fire. Well, Dax has been lighting stuff on fire with the laser, but I have not yet caught on fire yet. Although the laser project is going well. I'm excited to have this like laser pointer. No one else cares about it except for apparently uh, you, Timothy, Dax, and myself. No one else. No one else likes it. Confirmed. Yeah. Well, Peter, just Peter, Peter, yeah, Peter doesn't care. Although we can use it in a presentation at the MoFed. It'd be fun. Oh, hello. Yeah. Well, because what, it, the idea, what I'm working on is like a, a laser projector where you can take their laser pointer and draw with it and it stays oh, that's cool. on the surface. So like let's say we're doing a presentation in front of the legacy quilt, which you yeah. can describe that we're raising money for. That's right. It is a massive quilt composed of 400 blocks. Each block represents one story of a contribution made by an African-American to American cuisine. It will be a mind-blowing thing to look at. And the woman making it and her uh, colleagues are incredible at Harlem Needle Arts. That's true. Yeah, yeah. They are amazing. Anyway, um, so giant quilt, big stories. The whole, yeah. the whole reason is, is that in any like, normal-sized exhibition, right? there's no way to like, talk about the kind of breadth of contributions. 
And so inherently we have to cherry pick certain contributions and discuss them. So in order to try to show that these stories are merely a part of a much larger quilt, right? Um, you know, we don't like to use the word like tapestry because not everything is kind of woven together. It's a bunch of actual contributions, not just some sort of mishmash. And so uh, we had this quilt, but now imagine, so if you're trying to explain the stuff in the quilt, imagine if you had this laser pointer and a docent could walk up and draw a circle around a particular thing and it would stay there while you talked about it and then you click and it goes away. That's pretty amazing. It's cool, right? Yeah. That's what I'm building. What'd you say, Stas? What mean thing did you say? <laughs> You have a lot of questions. Go. I don't actually. Okay. You have six. Uh, I'm, what? You have six, I thought. I don't know. You thought? She said like, I didn't really bother yeah. reading them, but I don't know. Uh, okay, we get to the one. I'm going to go in backwards order. Uh, oh, Claire writes in. This is the last one. This is why she calls it six, because she had it. So Claire, of Vigetti and of wedding fame... <laughs> Friend of Nastasia, long time asker of ridiculous questions. Yeah, I'm friends with Claire. What is the best al alcoholic beverage to order for a body conscious gal living in Mexico City? Well, uh, order enough of any alcohol and you will no longer be body conscious. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, all alcohol contains the exact same amount of calories per gram of alcohol. And all of the spirits that at least I normally drink have no added sugar in them. And so they are all identical. So the question is, is what are you going to add to them? Uh, and so, um, I mean, just to put it in perspective, I, I can't look it up right now, but uh, let's say, you know, if you had, uh, I haven't done the math, but a little bit of sugar is not going to kill you. It's mainly, one of the main problems with alcohol, there are studies, I haven't looked at them recently, that if you drink you will also eat more. That like your inhibitions to stop eating have also been turned off and your desire to eat. So you end up eating a lot more when you're drinking. And so I think a lot of the excess calories are from excess food while you're when also Claire consuming When Claire came to my house in Connecticut, she had been drinking all night. She got there at 3 a.m. and she had taken all my Count Chocula and just... Right. So I'm uh, sure she's happy that you're sharing this. Yeah. That, well, my <laughs> point is, is that when you are drinking, you also tend to eat more... And so maybe that's the issue. Yeah. I would just drink what you like and then moderate the consumption of that. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. All right. Uh, we also had, uh, and this, this was interesting. Hold on a second. Um, I tried to be better for this person. Let's see, where are they? Okay. Steve, longtime listener. My wife will not let me listen to the podcast at home. Smart lady. Uh, and with six kids, I can't... <laughs> I can't find the me time I need to listen on the fly. At work, I'm in timing my Tuesday lunch breaks for the live podcast. I understand you're uh, a busy dad, if possible. It'd be great if you could try to get to the show on time, as I only get an hour's lunch. I will work on it. I will work on it, Steve. So you're a loyal listener in Duluth. Nastasia oh loves this question because she loves it when I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh you know what I'm saying? Rub it in. Yeah. She so loves sorry, it. man. <laughs> loves it. It's really sad. It's really sad, and that's why you're laughing. Three times. <laughs> Just imagining sitting there, <laughs> watching the clock tick by. Yeah. Six kids. Six kids. Angry wife. She didn't, no one said she was angry. She just doesn't want to hear our voices in her freaking house, which is fair. Fair. Anyway. Uh, by the way, Halloween coming up. And for those of you that have not yet bought your candy, shame on you. But also, there is still time to buy full-size candy. Remember... The only fun size is full size. I have 
spent an inordinate amount of money on this year's uh, Halloween candies. I will take a picture of it and post it out later. Nice. I love it. Do you, do you go to Economy Candy? Where do you go? No. I, I, internet. So usually Rite Aid runs a deal close to Halloween, and they might start it now where it's like 50 cent per full-size bar, and then you can get a whole bunch of them. But uh, they didn't this year, so I Amazon ordered it relatively early, and I paid a little more than 50 cents a bar. But like the, just the look on kids' faces when they open up the door, and it's like, ah, like full-size. Well, you must be known for that now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we go through a, an inordinate amount of candy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. nice. And then like, the trick is, is that I, mi- I might have to go out. Last year, I had to go out and replenish. Certain things are full-size, but they're not really full-size. Like, it's good to get a bunch of boxes of Airheads because... Even a full-size airhead's not that big, and it kind of fills the thing up. But I got like you know, I got a lot of the good. I got a lot of the good stuff. What's your favorite candy at the Halloween? Well, my favorite candy bar is whatchamacallit, but it's impossible to find that now. Mm, whatchamacallit? So, yeah, I put I bar. put one box of my favorites in, which is paydays. Yeah, yeah. I love a payday. I don't know whatchamacallit's got. What about you, Stas? I like milk duds. Really? Mm-hmm. I ate huh. a bunch of them this weekend. Yeah. I like a milk dud. I yeah. enjoy a milk dud. Uh, okay, yeah. so r- what, <laughs> Matt? Matt, what's your favorite? Uh, I I don't eat a lot of candy. I just don't. Oh Jesus! Sorry. Did you were you alive when you were a child? Yeah, but I still just pretty much went with like straight chocolate. Okay, so chocolate. I'm. Y- yeah. So special dark. I well now I just get a bunch of dark chocolate. It's true. I yeah okay. I don't think of that as candy. Oh, Mr. It's not, it doesn't pants. have like a fun marketing. I'm not attached to single any brand. origin only. Single origin my butt. That's what comes in the thing. You get Hershey's. You get Hershey's <laughs> special dark. You get Mr. Good bars and you get Crunch. Yeah. Those come. I thought it was crackle. Oh maybe. Oh crackle. yeah. Nastasia with the correct correction. All right. Uh, how do you think you pronounce that? Rard. Rard. Peter, you're good at people. Oh my. You also, you just got water of a question from Denmark that I'm going to hand you because it is too long. Uh, Jeebus. I'd say Rari. Actually, just email it to me and I'll put it on next week's question. Well, I don't know, unless it's time sensitive. All right. This is about EC. I'm an enthusiastic home cook and big fan of uh, existing conditions in the podcast. I'm rereading Liquid Intelligence. Nastasia's like, why? 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 Uh, And I want to buy a cream whipping siphon for rapid infusion. I figure that buying a secondhand EC is better than getting a $30 knockoff. True. uh, The $30 knockoff, if you buy the wrong one, may kill you like you killed that French blogger, whereas the EC one will not. Uh, Anything to watch out for buying a secondhand on eBay? Which model is best in your opinion? I don't really know. All of the professional ones, like, they're, they're all slightly different. I wouldn't bother getting a thermal one because then you can't heat it and they're kind of big for what they get. The trick is if you're going to buy a half liter or a full liter, the heads are interchangeable. So the ultimate would be is if you could buy a he- one head, make sure you have the gaskets because that you need all the gaskets and the tip and everything else is pretty, pretty bulletproof. Uh, but if you're going to only get one, I would probably get the, depends on what you're going to use it for. For rapid infusion, I would probably get the half liter unless you're going to do large batches all the time because especially for home use, a half liter is kind of a good size for infusing. But, you know, that's, I wouldn't get the, the small, small one. Those are ridiculous. Um, and I wouldn't get the, I wouldn't get the thermo one for your application. Um, anyway, uh, but they're all, like I say, pretty bulletproof. Jason in Northern Virginia writes in about combis. Greetings uh, to everyone present. Thanks for uh, inspiring us over the years. I'm interested in your thoughts on combi ovens. Uh, I frequently roast in my convection oven, and based on that experience and feedback from family members with steam, uh, steam ovens, the Gaginau or the Miele. By the way, Miele has a freaking lock on vacuum cleaners. People who, like, are professional cleaners, like, I feel like Miele must give them money 
Because they're always like, your vacuum cleaner sucks. Why don't you own a Miele? And it's like, because I don't have that kind of cash to spend on vacuums. They're like, it's a legacy vacuum machine uh, cleaner, man. I'm like, dude, like, do they pay you? Do they pay you? Anyway, uh, or Miele. Uh, I want a combi oven. I have my eye on the rationale of Combi Master Plus XS. I don't feel like I'd get a big benefit from the automation of the self-cooking center and may find the touchscreen irritating. Also, I spoke to a chef, remember? We uh, had a chef in at an event at MoFat the other day. He's like, my rationale uh, self-cooking centers break down all the time. Now, what chef was that? I'm not going to blow them up uh, all right, and all get right, them in trouble right, with right, their... Right, right. But they're looking to actually go to a more simple-minded combi oven. So the thing with a combi oven is that a lot of the fancier ones, and by fancier I mean Reed, Rationale, Electrolux, a lot of the ones with a lot of the crazy features in them, those crazy features and the electronic boards involved are things that break. So you have a certain category. Now at home, I don't know whether this is home or, or commercial, but at, at home, you know, you're not getting as intensive a use. They're not being abused as hard. You can make sure they have enough venting on the side. The old rationales used to break constantly because the electronic boards were too close to a heat, to heat source, and so they would fry out. But that's heavy-duty use, constant. If you're not going to do that, it might last you forever. So, like, something that might break constantly in a commercial application might last a home person the rest of their lives. You know what I mean? It's like, this, like you can go buy uh, commercial water slides that have been decommissioned from water slide parks because they're too used for a water slide, but for your house, they're going to be good for the rest of your life, if that makes sense. I mean, how many times is your butt going to go down that water slide? You know what I'm saying? Uh, but... But back to the uh, combi oven. What a weird comparison. I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> just saying. So, like, uh, like the okay. thing with, uh, with, with the combi ovens is a lot of chefs are moving to kind of lower, like, lower technology combi ovens so they can get the steam. If they don't need all of the widgetry, they can get the steam without the inherent uh, fact that it might break. Um, I remember you saying that – this is back to the question. I remember you saying that commercial combi ovens are inefficient. <laughs> you think so? I mean, like, the only way that those things uh, um, regulate their temperature is by hurling energy into the atmosphere. They are going to heat the hell out of your house, and as a benefit, it's going to cost you a lot to run it. Now, the gas ones, I mean, gas is real cheap. The electricity, man, I don't know. And also, you need a lot of power to run an electrical combi oven. Uh, well, the commercial ones. I don't know about the home ones. Um, but I feel like the benefits of steam and good temperature control are worth it, plus it cleans itself like a dishwasher, true. Uh, I comply with the venting requirements, maybe putting it under the same hood as the range. Due to the power draw of the larger combi ovens, I'd keep a regular oven for large things. Uh, yeah, so the XS, which I guess stands for extra small, I didn't get a chance to look it up, is 50 amps at 240 volts. Whoa. 50 amps that's, at 240 volts. That's a lot. Yeah, that, well, what is that? That's 2,000, 10,000 something watts yeah. like 12,000 watts is yeah. that right 12,000 watts 120 light bulbs 12,000 watts yeah. uh or you know so yeah that's a lot that's a lot of power uh any general thoughts on combi ovens or advice on other brands to consider i mostly eat vegetables these days but uh not sure where that balance will end up as time progresses i'm also interested in why you wouldn't install an induction uh cooktop at home but wouldn't want to ask a second question I would if I if I if, if I could do it again. I like in, I like induction. I mean, certain things are irritating. Like I like also having like a fire, but I use I use my induction cooktop a lot. Uh, you know, it's easy to control. I, you know, I use it. Um, I am loath to provide a um, recommendation on a specific combi oven just because I haven't used 
any of the modern ones or any of the smaller home ones, and I have not, nor will I ever recommend a piece of equipment I haven't used personally. Uh, that said, I would take a serious and long look because I don't, I haven't looked in years at the Gaganau, and again, I've never used it to home one, but I would assume that someone who's making a home combi oven can put it into like ridiculous mode versus like the same way Tesla does, Nastasia's favorite thing, the Tesla, where you can put it in kind of ludicrous mode and then you're using a whole boat ton of energy. How did you get? Super scared. Uh, especially with, you know, you at the wheel, you know, because you're crazy. But like, uh, so we put, uh, you put it in ludicrous mode or put it in normal mode where you're using a normal amount of energy. And I don't know whether any modern combi ovens, they might, because very recently they started rating combi ovens based on their energy consumption. And so combi oven manufacturers might've included, it's kind of like Volkswagen, you know, who lied about their energy consumption. They can tune the combi oven to not use as much energy, but then it's harder for them to do the low temperature stuff and to maintain the humidity exactly where they want. So... This is also my gripe with, with home dishwashers. If you can hear me and you're a dishwater, d- dishwasher manufacturer, like what I want is a home slash commercial dishwasher where it runs like a home dishwasher where it is both gentle and energy efficient and quiet, except for when you're having a party and then it runs like a commercial dishwasher and goes crazy, yeah. right? Like the way that most rich folks handle this is by getting two dishwashers. What a waste. Yeah. Why not just be able to put my dishwasher in super energy inefficient mode just for parties? Right. You know? Anyway. Uh, all right. Here is the... I'm going to actually make it to the last question for today. You like that, Nastasia? Wow. You like that? And then I'm going to do so quick impressed. classics in the field. I'm Jay. Uh, by the way, this is... They called you out. So, hello, Dave Hammer, Boothmaster Matt. How do you like that one? We're keeping it. Yeah. Uh, and the punching bag, if present. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jay. Straight up brain surgeon. Straight up brain surgeon. Keep those hands in shape. Don't burn those hands. Avid cook and collector of cooking lore and gadgetry and a liker of liquid intelligence, which, of course, we all know Nastasia hates. Uh, for some demographics for Nastasia, I'm 45, married with three kids, and they all cook as well. Worked in a restaurant bar industry throughout college in front of back of house at various jobs, and I get whatever kitchen stuff I like as long as I don't bother my wife about her passions. I wonder what her passions are. Mm. How do they interfere with each other? How do the cooking passions interfere with whatever the wife likes? I'm curious now. Yeah. Um, like, wh- wh- where, where does, where's the intersection? Don't you, don't you wonder? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, exceptions. Cookbooks. I have maybe 400, including Liquid Intelligence, and she gives me side-eye for any boxes with the approximate shape of the book. I understand this. <laughs> uh, I'm in the process of moving to South Carolina and going to do a complete remodel of the existing circa 2007 kitchen, which is pretty weak. The root question is as follows with several caveats which you can ignore or use to spur dis- uh, discussion. Uh, any advice on what equipment is a must-have and any specific ideas to implement? Budget is labile. I like a labile budget. Uh, I'm getting it plumbed with quarter turn ball valves, uh, per prior advice. Yeah, do that. Just make sure your freaking plumber actually does it because God, God, I hate regular, uh, right angle stops with the twist. Mm. They always break. They all, a quarter turn is so nice. Your, your plumbing will break people. Your plumbing fixtures will break. Why would you want to put yourself in a situation where you can't shut it off quickly and effectively? So dumb. So dumb. Why do they make those goddamn valves? Uh, obviously, know about the work triangle. The equipment will be sub-zero, 60-inch wide, a uh, uh, side-by-side fridge with separate freezer. Now, let's say, I don't know, let's say your wife's an architect, like mine. 
architects hate fridges because even the, what they call a countertop size fridge, countertop depth fridge, is actually deeper than a countertop. Check out, just for, for giggles, check out Liebherr, the same people who make, like, I think cranes and whatnot. Liebherr makes a true counter depth uh, refrigerator where the actual door of the fridge is flush with counter depth. Yeah, why is that? It's so weird. Well, I have this counter depth uh, fridge by Liebherr because my wife isn't. No, I mean, why is it that fridges are always just a bit off? Because that drives me nuts. Well, so they can call it counter depth, but like uh, the problem with the Liebherr is it's very tall. So like small children can't make it to the top. Or if you're, you know, you know, if you were like shorter, like then probably five, one or two, you probably couldn't make it to the to the top or back right without stepping on something, which is an irritant. Uh, but it's also shallow, so it's hard to put big things like a sheet tray with a turkey. Mm. You can kind of fit a half sheet tray in, but I think it's mainly for those depth reasons to kind of fit standard things mm. into them. That said, it does look good, and I do like it. It's got good temperature control, so take a look at the Lieb here. And Wolf, I'm getting a range topper range with double ovens depending on space. I'm getting a, a Wolf's Combi oven CVAP as one of the ovens. It is not plumbed. I have not looked at that one, but maybe our other listener could take a look at that one. I've not looked at it. I don't know anything about it. A plug-in induction burner, that's good. Warming drawer, good. Maybe a Blue Star salamander. I looked at it. It has electricity. Why? Is it for the igniters? If it's just the igniters, fine. If not, you need to have some equipment that runs even when your electricity turns off. Eventually, your electricity is going to turn off, and you're still going to want to be able to cook. So make sure that even when the electricity is off, unless you're a full electric kitchen, if you actually have gas, make sure that you can still do some cooking even when your electricity is off. Um, do I need a Bain-Marie? Eh, I mean, you have an emergency circulator, you say later, uh, later I think it's going to be kind of gilding the lily, and you can always just kind of improvise, improvise things uh, if you need it. I don't really want to fry her inside. I'm going to fry outside if needed due to stink slash films. Uh, by the way, stink film is our next band. Yep. And, uh, right, we're going to talk about uh, hoods later. Get yourself an outdoor fryer, uh, for sure, if you're not going to do it. Wiley has the Cajun fryer, and he likes it. The problem with the Cajun fryer is it doesn't have a good temperature control. If you're in an outside covered kitchen, I would get a regular commercial fryer and just update it for use in propane and build a cover for it. No one has a decent, like, fully automatic bezo valve outdoor fryer that I can find. It would be nice because the Cajun fryer not having a temperature control is a little bit of a crimp. Uh, the house doesn't have an outdoor space, so I have a full grill set up with a uh, green egg, wok burner, turkey fryer, pellet smoker, gas grill. Consider an oh. outdoor, as I say, consider an outdoor dedicated <clears throat> fryer. Consider in your outdoor kitchen this, hot, cold water. Put hot and cold water to your outdoor kitchen and put a low boy fridge outside with a worktop. The thing people don't have in their outdoor kitchen is a place to, to kind of prep things, and a way to clean yourself off when you're outside. Yeah. Hot and cold, right, which you can stub out from your house and run with a hose if you don't want to bother plumbing hot all the way out there uh, with a, you know, some sort of a pit drain into it and a refrigerator. That would be nice, right? Yep. An outdoor fryer. Uh, I would also get, obviously, I would put seltzer in and get an ice machine. Here's the problem with the ice machine. They're very energy inefficient, but if you have a nice bar, which you say you do, I would get, look into getting an ice machine. My wife hates it because it's loud right? The one that I have has what's called boardroom function. So you can press it and it turns off for four hours, which means that it doesn't make noise for four hours. Or you could consider putting it on a timer so that it's off during dinner time or whenever your wife is near it and doesn't like the noise. If your wife is like mine and doesn't like irritating noises, because it is irritating. I just tune it out. Um, the main thing that you're going to have a problem here is, uh, hoods. 
And then you ask me, how many cubic feet per minute of evacuation is good? Currently, your range is not on the wall, but you're going to be moving it to a wall. All right, look it. Look it. Look it, look it, look it, look it. The issue with hoods is this. Uh, I'm assuming you're going to have insurance on your house. And so if you're going to have insurance on your house, you have to do things to the code. And every kitchen that I've ever built with serious hood in it, and I've built some kitchens with some serious hoods in it, I've never done what's legal in terms of uh, makeup air. So all the air you suck out, you have to supply air for that, right? And so... Um, and you know, I'm not going to give you specific recommendations because you have to look at exactly how many BTUs, how wide they are. In general, it's going to be easiest for you to stick to a hood that is six feet. So try to get all your hot side in, like in under six feet and get the hood as low as you can reasonably to do the, be the best extraction. You don't want any kind of kinks in your ductwork. You want your ductwork to go straight up. Also, put your fan on the outside of your house. Do not put the fan in your kitchen. That's the main thing. Put the fan outside, or at least in the attic, somewhere away. You want really want an exterior uh, exterior upblast fan to do good stuff. And if you sounds like you're spending some money, so do it right. Try to hide it so it doesn't look ugly on the outside or whatever. But that is going to make your life much quieter in the kitchen and going to make everyone happier. I've always used very large size fans. The reason that home hoods suck so much is the well, they don't suck. The fans are. A, they have zero extraction. B, the fans are tiny, and because they're tiny, they have to spin at a very high speed, which makes a very irritating loud noise. You're going to want an exterior hood. But in a residential situation where you're in a house, you need to supply what's called makeup air such that um, you're not sucking uh, all of your air-conditioned air out, of, but also so that you don't suck fumes uh, from things like your, your boiler, your, your boiler, anything like that. They're worried about you possibly getting a blowout or whatever and getting carbon monoxide sucked through your house or other sort of bad things sucked through your house. So you definitely want to supply makeup air, which makes it a little more complicated. Yeah. But... Uh, that, and you, otherwise, if you don't have makeup air, like it's something stupid. Like I looked it up. I looked up the uh, international residential code and uh, exhaust systems of more than 400 cubic feet per minute and greater have to have makeup air equal to the exhaust air and automatically open and close with the operation of the fan. And if you don't, they're not going to be up to the residential code. And if yeah. they're not up to the residential code, if you do have a fire, you might have problems with your insurance. I don't think the, the IRC for home hoods, as long as you don't call it a commercial hood, I do not think they have fire suppression requirements, but you might look into it anyway because fire suppression is a good thing and you don't want to burn down your house. Now, that said, in the zero, in the minus five minutes allotted, Matt, I got a couple minutes? Uh, I mean, yeah, like five. Really. Sweet. Time for, and Peter's going to enjoy this one, time for this week's, what? Oh, I want to add. Pedal-operated faucet sink. Oh, hell yeah. Pedal-operated yes. faucet. That's something you don't see enough, and it's so nice. And no one hooks it up the way they should even when they have it. Oh, one last thing before I go into the last thing. Uh, I, like, next week is HRN's gala. Like, I don't know whether there's still tickets available. I don't even know where to go. But listen, when I was uh, at, right out of college, I worked for asbestos attorneys. When I worked for asbestos attorneys... Uh, I was their database designer, but I used to be a paralegal, and I interviewed all these people who died of mesothelioma as a result of asbestos uh, exposure. Uh, and I said this on air, one of those people gave me his car when he died. That's the car that I took to my wedding. Yeah. Um, uh, 1967 or 9, I can't remember, Plymouth Valiant. Um, sweet, sweet ride. Uh, but uh, we used to have these books that we would search through that had uh, product advertisements for asbestos. And so I used to search through them because the pictures were amazing, like, you know, like really cool, like mid-century 
like graphically cool pictures. And one of them that I loved, I made into a t-shirt like 25 years ago, and it was for a product called Limpet Asbestos. And it said on it, it's sprayed! Limpet asbestos. And then it said, no cutting, no no nailing, no whatever. It's sprayed. Oh my God. And then there's a picture of a guy spraying it inside <laughs> oh. of a school bus without a mask or anything. Oh just a guy God. spraying asbestos. Oh, my God. Right? And so I made this T-shirt when I, you know, the old school way. Like, I, I sit there and I, I Xeroxed it out, ex- enlarged it on Xerox, exposed a frame, Washed it out, did silk screening of the T-shirt, and the T-shirt finally died like last year. So I went on Custom Ink, and but the thing was, I set it up such that anyone could buy it. But I think only like 15 people or 11 or 15 people have bought. I need to sell 30 by the end of next week, or you, all the orders canceled. Donate to MoPad or the T-shirt. Which I'm not making choose? any money. But it's not a money. It's not a donate. I didn't set it up for me to make any I money. Know, I'm making zero money. But, I just want people to order the but T-shirt what and spend their money on. It's not, it's like, do you want a t-shirt? It's not, it's not an either or situation, Nastasia. Oh, so get both. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm going to figure out, I'm going to put it on, on Twitter, on my Twitter, a link to the thing where you can buy this group Mofad. order the and Mofad. I'm going to put on, the I'm going to put on, I'm going to put, what? We've talked about MoFan. I'm talking about t-shirts now. Get off Zappos. What are you looking at? <laughs> I can't even look at it. It was like some stupid website. Like Nastasia has never once listened to, what was I, I talking about? This bestest t-shirt. What about it? About how you... What about it? You Xerox and the original thing... What, uh, what is it for? What's the company? Custom Ink. What, no, what's the company? What's the asbestos company? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know because you weren't <laughs> listening. All right, so like the what's thing the is... What's asbestos company, Peter? Sprayed limpid asbestos. <laughs> anyway, so like uh, also like we have some Gildan haters out there for those of you that are no t-shirts. <laughs> because they are the crappiest. You chose them! They're the cheapest. By like They're 80 cents, you minutes. chose them. But they're the freaking same. If you look on the no, websites they, of people who actually manufacture T-shirts, they're like they're actually made by the same people in the same factory. Uh, but like, the, here's the thing: I'm gonna try to put on the anvils. The problem is, is that no, I don't know American how to change the order. Apparel is better. I don't care. I will try. I thought American Apparel went out of business with no, all the it's, with all it's the. Still like the, it's a brand. But it's not owned but by it's that. Not that brand, yeah. By that terrible person. All right. Anyway, so I'm going to put that on my Twitter. Look for it. Custom ink, cooking issues, sprayed limpet asbestos on the on the Twitter. You got to order them or else nobody gets them. Nobody. Nobody. Now, classics in the field. Yeah. All right. Giuliano Bugiali was a crazy son of a gun. He died in May of this year and he had one of the better names to say. Giuliano Bugiali. This book that I'm going to talk about today, I'm not going to talk about his most famous book. His most famous book uh, was his first book, and it was called The Fine Art of Italian Cooking. It was published in 1977. Uh, the one I'm going to talk about is called Classic Techniques of Italian Cooking. And the reason I love this book is it was given to me, it was the second cookbook that my mom ever bought me. I used to read all of my mom's cookbooks, which included, you know, the uh, Julia Child, Simone Beck, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, uh, all of the Time Life Cooking of the World series, uh, the Woman's Home Encyclopedia of Cooking, which was amazing. Woman's, I forget the exact title. We'll talk about that one later. Uh, the Gourmet's Best Desserts, all of that stuff. But uh, the first book she bought me was Julia Child's The Way to Cook, which was, you know, kind of formative for me. I still make the Queen of Sheba cake out of that. But the second book she ever bought me was Giuliano Bugiali's Classic Techniques of Italian Cooking. She must have bought this for me in, like, 1990 or something like this. And um, it's a black and white, thick book. And I remember reading it and thinking, this guy's a nut job. Like a complete wingding. 
like when you read him, he is the most vitriolic writer because, and I'll just read a little bit from the pre preface. He goes, I stress authenticity. If I stress authenticity, if, and he does, if I stress authenticity, and this is where Peter's going to be important for this discussion, <laughs> uh, it is because I feel the authentic versions of dishes are the ones that have stood the test of time, even for centuries. Any personal innovations, any personal innovations should stem from knowledge of the authentic traditional version. It is becoming increasingly possible to retain the authenticity of Italian cooking outside of Italy with greater availability of the proper ingredients and is worth the extra time, extra, is worth the extra effort to arrive at the traditional dish. After you have prepared and tasted the original recipe, then you can be more creative. What happens next is up to you, which sounds like it makes sense, although he actually never, ever wants you to change it because his core assumption is once you have made the original of course, you would never want to make anything else, right? right? Uh, and so, and and I don't imagine that he would want to use any ingredients that came over via the Colombian Exchange. So, so that's no interesting. Tomatoes, so no he corn. does rail against people thinking that it's first of all, you got to understand where he comes from. He's born in 1931, died this year. He's born in 1931, and uh, he came to America. He's born in, in Florence. He's a Florent, so you know, Nastasi, with all that implies, being like like a guy like a guy from Florence, an Italian chauvinist from Florence. Chauvinist, not in the male chauvinist sense, but in the Italian chauvinist sense. Uh, only really likes Italian food. So he comes over here and he's basically washed out. He's living Big Night. If you've never seen Big Night, why are you listening to this instead of going to watch Big Night? Big Night <laughs> is maybe my favorite food movie of all times. So he is a lot like uh, you know, uh, the Secundis, right? No, Primo. Primo. Secundo, primo and Secundo. Primo is, like, which one is, uh, which one is, uh, Primo's the Shalhoub. obstinate one. Tony Shalhoub, yeah. yeah. So he's a lot like Tony Shalhoub, right? He wants to do things exactly, you know, kind of the way they are. And so he, he comes to America and is awash in just kind of what he considers BS Italian food, garbage Italian food. And so another guy like this is Tony May, the, the restaurateur, which is a dumb word. It should be restaurateur, shouldn't it? Restaurateur is dumb. That's what the real word is, but it's dumb. I hope it gets changed. But anyway. <laughs> Everybody but, says restaurateur, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so like Tony May, the Italian restaurateur, in, although he retired recently, like he also had similar gripes. So like you could get Tony May, you could throw him into conniptions just by saying the words shrimp scampi. He's like, it's not shrimp scampi. He doesn't talk because he has like an Italian accent, which I'm not going to try to mimic. He's like, it's not shrimp scampi. Scampi is scampi and shrimp is shrimp. So he would go crazy, right? <laughs> He would lose his mind. And so you'd be like, shrimp scampi. And Tony May's head would just yeah. explode. He used to come to the French culinary and say, and say how much he hated the idea of shrimp scampi over yeah. and over again. Anyway, so Bugiali, I've been reading his book for years, right? And certain of my, my go-to recipes, he has a recipe that is for uh, a pasta. And I completely bastardized it, which is going to be terrible. It was an asparagus pasta. I, I make it with broccoli because it's available all year. I'll tell you the recipe right now. It's very easy. Uh, saute some onion. Chop up some onions. Don't put garlic in it or Bujali will come back to, from death and kill you. Come back to life and kill you. But saute some onions. Saute it. Chicken stock. Throw in uh, the broccoli with asparagus. He hates. Don't. Don't. Freaking. Don't. Don't. Use broccoli if you don't want Bujali's like ghost to come and kill you. But I do broccoli. Throw the broccoli in, steam it, then blend that 
blend, like after it's steamed, blend the whole thing in a blender. I add cheese. I don't think he does. I add some grana, salt, and pepper, and it makes a super creamy broccoli sauce that you can put onto like fine, like thinner, finer pastas. And Angel it's, hair, yeah. it's delicious. Yeah. It's delicious. Cooking it in that would be good too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Par cooking a little bit because it's already a very thick sauce. You could yeah. add more chicken stock. I don't add that much chicken stock, so my sauce is relatively thick. But do you like? But anyway, so he makes it with asparagus, and that's a sauce that I've made now for like thirty years, fundamentally. And also, I didn't have the money for asparagus, so I told him once. I was like, I, I met him maybe three times, and I told him I was like, I make your sauce all the time, but I don't have asparagus, so I make it with broccoli. And he was like, Pfft. Yeah. Like the good thing about him is this. If you look at pictures of him in this book and all of his techniques, the thing I like about this book as opposed to the, the, uh, his more famous book is that all of the techniques in here are illustrated with a zillion black and white photos of him doing stuff. Yeah, if, it reminds me of the Jacques Pépin book. Actually. That I also love, right. Yeah. So if you look at his thing of making pasta, the joy, the look of joy on the yeah, man's yeah. face as he's making pasta is immense, right? Yeah. And the thing that was kind of endearing about him uh, is that he would sit there. I once asked him, I was like, when they started making lardo at Oto, when Zach was started making uh, lardo at Oto, I was like, oh, they're making lardo at Oto now. Have you tried? He's like, yes. I was like, he's like, I was like, do you like it? He goes, no. There you go. No, because they added spices and he didn't want the spices. Here's what he said that, that he, for all of his curmudgeonliness, which was real, that's the thing. So when I had met him, I'd already, I'd met him in maybe 2000. Four, I'd already been cooking from his book for like 14 years, right? And so he was very nice to me. I had dinner with him with Barbara Kafka, who was uh, last week's, um, you know, classics in the field person. I had dinner with them together. And he liked me because I liked, I think, because I liked his book and was genuinely curious. And I was asking him a lot of questions. But he, he was so hardcore. But And this is what Nastasia says about me. He would then insult me with a smile on his face. So he always had a smile on his face when he was insulting you or telling you that what you were doing was garbage. I'll give you some uh, quotes from him. I'll give you two quotes. You should check out his book. By the way, he has some super old school, like my, uh, my uh, chestnut, my Italian chestnut cake is his recipe that I make all the time, which is nice but on the dry side if you like Italian chestnut cakes. And if you're a big night fan, if you want to recreate the timpano thing, he has a pasticcio alla lepre, which is very close to that, which you can look at to do a full-on old-school um, thing. And what I was going to get into, if I had more time, Peter, well, but I'll, I'll do his quotes last. The thing about authenticity, <laughs> the thing about authenticity is that authenticity is fake, right? There right. is no such thing as authenticity. So like John McWhorter, who writes about English, language has a lot of the same thing. People try to codify a language, but language is an ever-moving target. Food is also an ever-moving target. That's what our whole exhibition on Chow is about. Yeah. I mean, I would say authenticity requires also pegging it to a time, a place, and a people, right? So you can be authentic to a particular moment or people, but if you're not giving that additional information, just something being purely objectively authentic is just like a nonsense idea. Right. And so he, and he studied, Bujali studied, um, all of the eras that he could find of Italian cooking. So this right. is why he also says, we're not all tomato sauce and garlic. Arr! In fact, that's not even the majority of our food. Yeah. And he was interested in all the regions and all the times, but he was still stuck on this idea of authenticity, which to me seemed kind of weird, but I will tell you where it come from. I'll read you a quote that will, and I think he misframed it in terms of authenticity. Uh, I'll first say this. Is a quote from him in 1998. Everyone says all Italian mamas are wonderful cooks. 
That's not true. My mother never cooked one egg, and the stuff other mothers make is not necessarily top food or even authentic. So what he's saying is, not only is your mom's food bad, it's not even authentic right. to what he wants to do. Yeah. But then, here is where, here's where it is. Giuliano Bugiali, throughout his life, saw himself as, and he, he ha- maintained a cooking school in Italy and maintained a house here in the U.S. and was back and forth. But he saw himself as someone who was trying to maintain an idea, maintain a series and a battery of things and to not have them bastardized. He was especially mad about French bastardization of, um, of, of foods and the perception of French as being the highest end cuisine when he was such a lover of the history of Italian. In fact, he hated fusion so much that uh, this is from his New York Times obituary. They says, for my last meal, I want fusion cuisine and bastardized Italian food. Then I wouldn't be afraid to die. That's what he said. But, wow. uh, but to give you an idea of what it is, he saw himself as a preservationist. And this is, this is the key quote, and help me understand him better. He said, on Italian cooks, he said in, in the Chicago Tribune in 1998, cooks season each dish with their ego. <laughs> Meaning that, it's your ego that's making you change the dish and you can't respect something that was built up by a people and a time, right. at a time and a place over centuries. So please check out Classic Techniques of Italian Cooking, Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.